Hat on. Gloves on. Um, and stepping out into the frigid air, listening to the snow squeaking under my boots. You can uh, tell the change in temperature just from the previous. If you listen to that squeaking, it gets almost annoying, but I may take some of my walking fresh snow just to avoid that. Um, so, so if I were to sum up what I think I said yesterday, although I am not entirely sure, I was talking about the possibility that you could exchange the concept of meaningfulness in any place where where the con the conceptualization is transcendent that meaningfulness is transcendent now i will admit that that meaningful is often undifferentiated so I'm gonna I'm gonna re-establish that. Um, there is importance, meaningfulness, and there is self-evident meaningfulness. And I, I think that there's a, a very interesting interplay between those two that I want to look at more. But for now, I'm I'm just gonna split those apart. Um, it may be super important to drink water, um, but it it never will really be transcendently, um, self-evidently meaningful for very long. Okay, because it will. It, it, if you are super thirsty, it will be very. You will have lots of importance, meaning. And it will be your focus. But then it will immediately, um, it will immediately trigger satiation. You will say, "Okay, now I have drunk," and it will no longer be meaningful. So, it it isn't transcendent. Um, in in some ways, it's it's the opposite of transcendent. It is, um, it is the lack of water. Let's say that will it's a lack of water that will take over your thought processes um, it is it is being thirsty that will make itself your total focus but then the moment it's fulfilled it goes away um, so you so you you are very aware of the importance of the water, so much so that when it no longer becomes important, you are no longer thirsty. You, it's done. Okay, but that's not the way it is with things that are self-evidently meaningful. Um, my wife is 
I'm going to talk about an area of self-evident meaningfulness in my life, um, and that is fishing. I don't know why it is. I love fishing, and uh, so because of that, I have I have made some, I think, wise choices, and one of those wise choices is to include in my conceptualization of fishing, turning the fish into fillets that my wife can can cook or we can cook together and that has been that's been wise that was a wise thing that I did a wise um, strategy because my wife wants me to go and fish and get fish but there still is a fundamental disconnect um, and sometimes I will I will try to to go fishing sort of as I have this desire to go fishing and it's like oh, I'm just gonna get out and go fishing and then I will be over wanting to fish and it's always it's very interesting to me that that doesn't happen if I go fishing it's like it awakens in me a desire to fish more and it's only by great great discipline that when I go fishing I pay attention to the time and, and come home at a specific time I, I could easily particularly when the fish are biting I could easily be gone the whole day and on a normal day you know, I go an hour without eating and I'm starting to say, hmm, I'm getting hungry. But not when I'm out fishing. Um, when I'm out fishing, particularly when I'm catching, but I will tell you, not exclusively when I'm catching, I can go hours without it. So fishing is, ah, no more squeak. I'm wading through foot-deep snow. So you may have to put up with me breathing hard instead of the snow squeaking, but I'll, uh, I'll risk that. Um, so, so that is self-evident meaningfulness. And what I'm saying is that is a version of transcendence. And it's, it's very different from importance. Um, so if I distinguish those two, and say they, they, they're, they're different even though they look the same. Um, and, and separate those things that I can't really tell you why they're meaningful, but they are. I mean, you could say, well, your parents taught you. It's like, well, yeah, I, I, although my parents didn't, you know, it would be, I guess, from my grandfather that taught me to love fishing. But with my kids, there is a huge difference in how much they want to fish. My first son um, has little to no interest in fishing. Second son, little to no interest in fishing. My third son can fish as long as I do or longer. Why? I don't know. That's the self-evident quality. And now you're probably extra confused because 
I was talking about transcendence, talking about ideas of heaven, and now I'm talking about connecting it to, to fishing. And I am. I'm not suggesting that fishing is heaven, or that we... I am suggesting that we get an idea of what it is like to transcend for me by fishing. For my, for my friend Scott, by playing a guitar solo. Um, for, for others, by painting. Um, others in sports. The sports stories are are filled with times when when somebody's desire to play caused transcendence you know they played for for half a half a game on a broken ankle and you could say well that's that's adrenaline and i would say well okay that is the substance which allowed it but not everyone who breaks their ankle gets a dose of adrenaline which allows them to function. So what triggered the adrenaline was not the breaking of the ankle. What triggered the adrenaline was the meaningfulness of the undertaking. Okay, I go to this, I do this every time. If you're listening to me, you, you, you've gotten used to it. I go to to recap yesterday and I just find so much more to talk about but anyway my my concept of meaningfulness I tied yesterday to to I think the Christian idea of of heaven and basically my suggestion was that if there were a transcendent existence that the thing that would make that transcendent existence heavenly would be the ability to match it with something meaningful. Um, otherwise, it would it would amount to something like hell. It is the meaningfulness, boy, the the. The, the animal tracks I'm crossing through are very interesting. This is something short, but it's leaping quite a ways. Um, I don't know. It's beautiful out, but man, is it cold. Okay, so, so I'm suggesting that when Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven... What he's saying is, hey, you're going to get to heaven, and there's only going to be um, all of these things that were important to you aren't going to be there. So, so getting that drink of water after you have been almost dying of thirst, or getting a bite to eat after you you're just about starved doesn't seem to be consistent with the transcendent. 
those things are at the at the opposite extreme they are when you are most aware of your connection to the physical so if there is a transcendent existence that's not what it includes what your transcendent existence includes is a, a total unawareness of the problems involved with a world that is limited in space and scope. So, in, in this world, without, without space and, and I, I maybe spoke that wrong. I got, occasionally I do get distracted out here. But, but anyway, the, 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 we, we're in this world with physical limitations. Things are out of reach. They are short in supply. They are, that, they are needs for us. And if we are to enter a transcendent existence, then we are... Um, then, then we are going to have to have, I mean, we're not going to have importance values. The only kind of values that we would have are these self-evident meaningfulness. And so it could be that Jesus is saying, hey, the, the way you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven is you, is you figure out what parts of your life are meaningful. And that, that brings a lot of questions, but it also brings a conceptualization that, that seems to kind of resonate for me that that heaven would have this idea of eternity precisely because it's so connected with our with what is meaningful to us so I'm going to go and I'm going to do the things which are most meaningful which are the things that make me lose track of, of time and hunger and thirst and, and all of those things. And so, the idea of heaven then becomes not the idea of a different place that we get transcended into. But it becomes then a, a total different mode of being. And I do think that's one thing that you can draw from all of the Christian references to heaven, is they all seem to come to this, this place where they say, we can't really describe it. It's a bit like this, but we can't really describe it. It's a bit like this, but we can't 
measure it. It's a bit like this, but we can't conceive of it. And I think that that's very understandable. Okay, but that's all coming at this Christian idea of transcendence. And I'm, I'm interested, if I'm going to look at this, of what many people have said about transcendence. And there seems to me a, a useful categorization to make between East and Western ideas of, of heaven. Um, although I'm not sure it's at East and West. It may be the monotheistic religions. It may not even include Judaism. Um, there's, there's arguments that Judaism sort of didn't really have a developed idea of heaven and hell. Um, I think it'd be hard to argue that it didn't have them. But I think you could make an argument that it wasn't, certainly wasn't as front and center as it tends to be in Christianity and Islam. Um, in Christianity and Islam, it does seem that heaven is the antidote to a world full of sin. Um, that you might have to put up with some very bad things in this world to get to go to heaven and then it'll all be right for you now whether or not that is true that is a useful idea for anyone who is vested in the status quo so if you are in the reins of power today um, probably you're going to find that that trying to tell your followers, so to speak, that they should just hang on because the day is coming when they're going to go and transcend and then it'll all be good. Now, an Eastern stream of thought um, seems to have a different idea. Um, and, and, and I know that Buddhism is many different ideas that are explored. But I do think there is sort of a, a central idea um, in the East that the world is what it is. And whether it's through enlightenment or whether it's through um, a karmic journey, that your job isn't isn't so much to, to to isn't so much to fix the world but to realize that the world is the universe is and so the idea i think one way to put that ideal is the idea that you would come to a place where you would not wish the universe was other than it is. 
and that's that's sort of a an aesthetic goal i i think it can even be kind of a nihilistic goal um that's that's not but but it, it is basically saying the universe I, I don't know you can't even say it this way but you might that the universe is as it ought to be although the moment you have ought then you introduce a whole nother set of who me who means for it to be that way how ought it to be that way and then your your conception of god then has this this ability to intend things a certain way which it may god may or may not be that way i think he probably is but i also realize that that is how it is possible for me to conceive of him and so if someone were to conceive of a god um some other way i i don't think it takes away from his divinity if he is not a god who who is um, focused on what ought to be but rather is focused on um man the the tracks i don't know i've ever seen so many different tracks so in eastern in, in the Eastern conceptualization, the way in which you conquer the universe um, or are set free, that, I think that would be better. It's not that you conquer, that you win and it loses. It's that you come to realize that what is, that, that, that you become someone, I think the best way I know to say it is that you become someone who does not wish that the universe was other than it is. And it's like, well, yeah, but you're freezing cold. And, well, that, that might suggest to you some action, but it does not suggest that, that the universe is flawed. Um, the universe is right, and, and if you can... So if, if you cannot fret, um, not grasp at something else, not act like it is an injustice that, the, that it's 20 degrees below, or 18 right now, maybe. Um, but instead, to say, okay, this is correct, now how do I fit into this? Well, currently I'm fitting into this with the with a big, thick woolen sweater and a fur cap. And that's a good way to fit in with this. And it's like, yeah, but that's fine, but what if you were out in it with nothing? Then I think probably the ideal for, for someone who has this approach is that if you truly transcended, you would, you would not care. So if, if I were out here with nothing and freezing to death, that even then I wouldn't wish that the universe was other than it is. And 
the suggestion is that if you could be that sort of person who even being being frozen to death could not turn your anger at the universe for being wrong that then you truly would have broken free of the grasp that the world holds upon you and you would transcend and 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 in that transcendence would not be a miraculous um, a miraculous arrival of a jacket and a cup of hot chocolate but that the transcendence and and you have to see in that picture that's a little what Christian idea of heaven looks like it says you you go out and freeze in the cold for a while and thereupon when you finally die if not sooner then heaven sets it right by giving you a jacket and hot chocolate and the transcendence is the the getting all the goodies after the world has done its worst to you and and i think the eastern says no that's probably not the right hope the the hope you ought to hope is that that you could say everything is as it ought to be and not well i like to say it that way but no i don't wish that it was other than it is even if it means my death and so your transcendence in that conceptualization your transcendence is the fact that your consciousness is in a world where you cannot be affected your your consciousness is anchored to something that isn't going to go up and down with the temperature or with the pain that you're in the problem is that in that form um it, it's it's probably difficult to distinguish it from a nihilism that says there's no purpose to the universe you dying and you living is both the same and then as i was was thinking about this and realizing i know so little about buddhism i i just i decided to discuss it with a friend who knows a little bit more than i do the problem that I have is that growing up as a as a Christian evangelical, I got to learn about Buddhism from people who are Christians telling me what Buddhism was Buddhism was about, and that's a very dishonest trick. Um, what what we ought to do is find the the Buddhists we we admire the most. Or the Mormon we admire the most, or the Hindu we admire most, or whatever, the atheist we admire most, and ask them. Um, it's a version of the straw man argument. Um, so I don't have 
access to that many Buddhists, but I do have a friend who I admire, and and he said something that that really is sort of the nexus for this whole discussion. He said that in the in the little splinter of Buddhism which he is only mildly informed about, he he talked about the transcendence, the nirvana, I suppose, the point at which the world no longer has a hold upon you, where you aren't grasping. That was kind of a central world word. But the idea that you aren't wishing the universe was other than it is. And I was, I was again, very fascinated because he said there is, there is that point, that point at which the world has no hold upon you. And when I pointed out that that seems very close kin to a nihilism from which it's hard to extract any meaning he he definitely agreed he, he saw that and or maybe didn't see that as a, as a problem um, and yet I, I think we can there haven't been a lot of places no let me just say it this way of the few Buddhists that I know enough to respect, I cannot easily stick them into the category of the nihilists who I met, who I, I don't respect. Um, I, I, I understand their nihilism, that nothing matters that you should act as if there's no nothing good waiting for you, nothing that's going to happen. But, but I, I hesitate to, to stick them in the same category. And that was when he shared with me something that I think is so fascinating. He said, actually, in, in the conceptualization of Buddhism that he's familiar with, the highest level for the human is to is to achieve the enlightenment. And, and the enlightenment is th this point, um, and this is terribly simple, and don't come to me to learn about Buddhism, um, but the enlightenment is this place where you stop your grasping at the world, where you stop wishing that the universe was other than it is. And the pain that you are going through, or the joy, um, you overcome the hold it has upon you. If you're having a good day, you overcome the impulse to wish that every day was this way. And if it's painful, you overcome the desire to feel like the universe is somehow owes you something because it was unjust. But he said that isn't the highest. The highest is enlightened. But then he said there is this case where somebody in the path of 
in, in a Buddhist concept in the path of enlightenment where they achieve that they achieve that place where they could say nothing's going to bother me I am I am enlightened I have transcended this world and the hold it has upon me and the hold I have on it and then instead of entering that enlightened state they determine that what they ought to do is to stay connected to the world to help others find that enlightenment and this just like to me it was so exciting because that is what I would hypothesize is the ultimate form of meaningfulness. Okay, back to my concept of meaningfulness. It's self-evident, the fishing is self-evidently meaningful to me. It's not about getting fish to eat. It's, it's a, something that I enjoy, something that I, I lose some of my connection to the pain and suffering of the world when, and the duration and all these things, time and hunger and pain, I lose that while I am fishing. This time of year, you think of ice fishing. I mean, the biggest place, my hands never get cold while I'm catching fish. But suddenly, you'll have a run. You get four or five fish pulled up through the ice, unhooked, and your hooks are back. And then you stop, and the fish stop biting for a few minutes. And, oh, man, your fingers are so far beyond frozen. And you're like, how did I not notice that they were getting cold? I didn't notice because I was caught up in meaningfulness. So what I'm describing there is, is on a spectrum. It's way to one side. That's just the beginning hints of meaningfulness. And, and so the, the concept that I have is that if that's, the, if, if that's the trailing edge of meaningfulness, that as you found more and more meaningful things, that you would, that they would cause you to transcend even more. Okay, so, I mean, I could say that fishing lets me transcend my cold fingers but i'm thinking it probably wouldn't allow me to transcend having a heart attack it pro having a heart attack would probably actually interrupt the even if the fish were biting right so so on one end are these self-evidently meaningful things that are very varied they don't they aren't the same for all humans you have a unique area of meaningfulness i do each person does but as you find things that are meaningful the question would be is there something which is which is meaningful across all generations and across all personalities 
And I would say, well, that's a, that's a pretty tall order to fill. I mean, it'd be a lot easier to say, hey, you like chess, I like fishing, he likes playing guitar, she likes singing. We're all different. And maybe that's, maybe that's the best, that's the safest. But as you say, well, but that's just the low edge of meaningfulness. As you seek meaningfulness and try to find it at a deeper and deeper level, so that your what gives you meaning transcends more and more of what is going on around you. What is at the top end? What is the most meaningful thing that you can engage in, and therefore the most transcendent thing that you can engage in? What is, in the, in the, in the Buddhist structure, I said, what is enlightenment, and then what is even above enlightenment? And it's just so fascinating to me that if you follow both of these tra trains of thought, you try to view the world from the conceptualization of these. They, they, they differ quite, quite markedly in the middle. But as they come to the, come to the ends, there's this fascinating return to the same core idea. So what is, what is the meta-meaningfulness? What is the the, the form of meaningfulness which is unique to all humans. Well, Jesus takes a stab at it, and I believe that he was equipped to actually answer it. So I would say it's an inspired answer. What's his inspired answer? His inspired answer is that those who are greatest in the kingdom of God are those who learn to be the servants of all. And you're like, well, that's not what it says. Well, yeah, isn't it? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is this realm of transcendence. This world outside our world. And this world outside our world, yes, you could think of it as heaven, as some sort of alternate existence. But if you think of it as a transcendent state, you aren't sure really what it is. So I would say that, that I don't think I'm pulling too far out of the meaning of the, of the statement to say, okay, those who want to have the greatest transcendence are those who learn to be the servant of all. And then I flip over to to this idea in Buddhism that, that there is a point where you can transcend. You can say, you know what? Whatever the universe does, I'm not going to wish it was other than it is. And then as you are about to live this life, which, which may be the enlightenment or maybe a, a, a sink into nihilism, there's one more step, and that is to say, now that I know that this universe doesn't have a hold on me, what is it that I could do 
to let the people around me see that truth. And that's fascinating. And what you might do to, to, to help them to see that truth seems to be a very different thing than what happens to the nihilist. The nihilist gets to a point and says, the world has no meaning. And if you think it does, then it may be my responsibility to show you that it has no meaning. So perhaps if I'm a, if I'm a committed nihilist as a 16-year-old misfit, I should go to the school and shoot all of those people who think that life has some meaning for no good reason. And I should show the world that all meaning, all their ideas of meaning are meaningless. And that's the problem. I said, I don't, I don't, I don't exactly see how you can escape that being a logical, a logical outcome of a nihilist conception of the world. But here, suddenly in this Buddhism, is not that. It, you're at that point. You're on the cutting edge of, of, of saying, the world has no hold on me because it can't possibly have any meaning. To saying, wait, if I, if I take that for myself, if I say, okay, I'm equipped to deal with all of the hardship of the world, then I have, I have in that moment, I have missed the chance to become the agent, the agent that would help the people around me. And so what if, what if that, that enlightened Buddhist said, and, and, and I'm making it simple, I, I don't want to be putting ideas that aren't there, but again, I'm not looking at people who've written about the ideas. I'm looking at this fundamental question. I hope I'm treating it honestly, but that Buddhist would say, huh, I have reached the point where I know that what this world has, I don't have to wish. I don't have to wish that the universe was different than it is. I can face what this world has and say it could be that I am the kind of person who deserves that. But my brothers and sisters on this journey could be more equipped to be enlightened if they received strength from me. And, and now here, there's all of these crisscrosses into Christianity. You have Jesus saying, the poor you will always have with you. You may do good to them whenever you choose. He's saying, look, at, stop, stop approaching poverty as if it needs to be fixed. Approach poverty as if you have something to share with the poor man. And suddenly you hear 
two great religions echoing each other. Jesus saying, hey, when you learn to be the servant of all, you will find the greatest transcendence. And the Buddha is saying, look, it, 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 you're going to follow this through and you're going to be on the very cusp of meaninglessness. And in that moment when you finally are prepared to say the whole universe is meaningless, it is then that you can step into a different role. And you can give... You can't give meaning. Yes, you can, you can give meaning. You can, you, can, you can find meaning... In, in causing in causing enlightenment I know I, I know I've just simplified things and, and, and I've made huge leaps in logic and whatever but I'm not trying to to rehabilitate Christianity and accommodate it to I'm at the stove too so I'm almost in but it isn't it isn't the attempt to, to say they're all the same. It's an attempt to say that what is the same doesn't change. Those who are looking for it will find it. If you seek, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. If you are, if you are looking for what gives life meaning, it's amazing to me that you can find it. Now, Will Buddhism give you the ability to do it? Well, I don't know. I'm out there and it's 20 below. I could just decide that it doesn't matter and I could, I could die. Maybe, maybe that's all there is. But, at least it knows where to go. For me, but the same thing is true. Jesus says that. He says that the one who builds his house on the rock is the one who takes these words of mine and puts them into practice. The enlightenment for Jesus Christ certainly isn't knowing something about him. The enlightenment is doing something. Now, I, I think with the picture of the Christ. So so I'm, I'm going to talk about the picture of him and then the reality. So I think the picture of the Christ is that being which chose to sacrifice them itself, to, to face the evil of the world and sacrifice itself. And I believe, okay, and this is the, the place where my Christianity becomes the, something unique in a world of lots of people seeking the truth. Is it? I find in, in, in Jesus Christ the, the embodiment of this, this mythical, archetypal being. I think that's what God says. See, he is the Word become flesh. So, the, the, 
the word is spread all throughout the world. But there is one moment in history where where someone embodies that in the most coherent form. You could you could take that or leave that. That's very important to me. But that's not where I am tonight. And your your meeting Jesus Christ is something on on your time, on his time maybe, or your time in his terms, whatever. But but what I am at least saying is that I find it intriguing that all of these world system come to the same conclusion. That conclusion that that meaningfulness is is transcendent. And that this transcendence of meaningfulness is is very important. What what do you do with this talk? I don't know. If it if it think about it. Don't just listen to me. You think it through. And then if you want to put this into practice, I think I can wholeheartedly suggest search for meaningfulness. I guess, I guess maybe that's where I should go next and tell you my personal story about my search for, for meaningfulness. Maybe that'll be next. I don't know. Hope you enjoyed this. I'm going inside because it is cold out. Happy trails to you. Hello. What's that? Oh, I make my podcast while I walk. And my microphone gets covered in snot. So sometimes I only end up making half a podcast. What's that? Did you say hi? Hi, hi. Thank you.